everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of Morgan Webster's Wrestling Friends. As always, I am the mod father of professional wrestling, Morgan Webster, or somebody called me this week, the pod father. I love it. I am the pod father of professional wrestling. Absolutely brilliant. Or, for some of you might know, I'm also the Pro Wrestling Illustrator 390th K-Fabed wrestler in the world, which is, uh, which is for a Welsh boy from the valleys like myself, absolutely mental. So yeah, thanks Pro Wrestling Illustrator, it really does mean a lot. But more importantly than that, more importantly being the podfather or the 390th wrestler in the world, for the next 45 minutes to the hour, I am your host, or as I like to see it, facilitator. Through these chats, discussions, gatherings, you know me, I absolutely love that word, gatherings with your wrestling favourites and my wrestling friends. If you listen to this podcast, I guess you guys already know it comes to you free every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud or Podcast Addict or wherever, wherever you get your podcast from. But please be sure to rate, subscribe, review, do whatever you need to do to let the rest of the world know how much you're enjoying this podcast because it really does help us push our way up that podcast list and tap into new listeners. But if you do want to give something back, if you do want to say Flash, I'm enjoying the show. I'm loving the show. I want to help keep this free. And please head over to morganwebster.bigcartel.com and maybe pick up a t-shirt or a DVD or even a picture. Because everything you buy there helps support me, helps keep this podcast free and helps me on my road to recovery. Apart from that, maybe just give me a shout out on social media. Let me know how much you're enjoying this show. You can do that at Flash underscore Morgan on the Twitter or even hashtag Wrestling Friends. Let me know if you love this show. Let me know if you hate this show. Every feedback is appreciated. But please, if you are going to criticize, be constructive. As always, I also have the email, flashmorgan at live.co.uk. Some of you have sent in some good feedback, talking about audio, talking about the equipment I use, and I'm looking into it. I'm going to try to push up the standards, and I'm going to try to make sure that this podcast is as good as it can be. Apart from that, all I've got to say is make sure the radio's cracked up, make sure those headphones are in, and sit back and enjoy the show. My guest this week is the bastard, the bastard, Dave Mastiff. I've already said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, it is my favourite nickname in all of wrestling, the bastard. And he really is fantastic. And to be honest, uh, since my shoulder surgery, I've had a lot of downtime this week. So I've uh, listened to this this conversation about three or four times and it really is a joy, it's fantastic. Dave speaks directly from the heart, he doesn't pull any punches, he's a straight shooter. But he wraps a lot of it in charisma and a lot of funny stories. He's a really funny guy. I was speaking to somebody the other day and they said that Dave Massive scares the hell out of them. And I couldn't quite get it. I was a bit like, Dave, really? Dave really is one of the funniest guys, the most charismatic guys in the locker room. And then I kind of cast my own mind back to about three or four years ago when I first met Dave Mastiff. Before we became wrestling friends. And yep, Dave scared the hell out of me. He really, really did really intimidating. But uh, I think when you listen to this podcast, you kind of understand that Dave's been around a long time. People have come and gone from British wrestling. And I think it takes a long time for Dave to open up and for Dave to trust and become real friends with people. And uh, over the last four years, five years, I think I've done that. I think I've earned Dave's trust. I've earned Dave's friendship. And uh, he really is somebody that I love. I love to be around. Uh, another shout out to Dave as well. I haven't I haven't said this uh, in the conversation uh, but uh, Dave, Pete Dunn, Vicky Haskins and Mark Haskins were uh, the four people who uh, looked after me when I got uh, hurt of progress. They, uh, Pete came with me to the hospital and then uh, Vicky and Mark picked me up and Dave was uh, was really, really kind enough to uh, wait nearly two hours at a service station outside of London so we could meet up with him so he could take me uh, to the Midlands. So yeah, that really does show how much heart and how much of a good guy Dave Mastiff is. He's scary, he is 
but uh, he really is one of the good guys. He uh, love him, love Div. He's gonna hate me for saying that, but yeah, much love, much love. But uh, before that, we're gonna have the band of the week. Band of the week this week is a five-piece hard rock band from the Midlands, just like Dave Mastiff. One of the reasons I've chosen them this week, the other reason is because, well, they're fantastic. I was contacted by a uh, fan on the email and they said to me, Flash, loving the show. How about you check out Black Rose Cadillac? I think it'll be exactly what you're looking for. And I did, and they are. So yeah, you should definitely check them out if you enjoy this song. They're on Twitter, Black Rose Caddy UK, or on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Instagram as Black Rose Cadillac. But yeah, they've got that really heavy rock sound that a lot of wrestling fans are into, and they're a big difference from the indie band, The Scruff, that we had on last week. But remember... If you want to be on the show, if you know a band, in a band, or maybe you're a solo artist, and you want to be featured on Morgan Webster's Wrestling Friends Band of the Week, then please drop me an email at flashmorgan at live.co.uk and let me know. But without further ado, here's Black Rose Cadillac with Crazy. And after that, I'll be joined by The Bastard, Dave Mastiff. Hope you enjoy.
I'm joined here by Dave Mastiff. How you doing? I'm good. <laughs> I say I'm good. I'm good. These, all my conversations go, you good? They go, you good? Are you good? No, I'm not good. This is, <laughs> this is why I'm doing the podcast, but no. So this is where you want your sympathy? This is where, this is where I want you to put me over. No, I'm joking. This, no, I'm this, as, I, as, I, as I say at the beginning of every podcast, this is, I'm more of a facilitator, so we're going to have a chat. You kind of sound like someone who's helping people get drugs. I am the wrestling is a drug, Dave. This oh, is yeah. what I'm. This is what I'm helping get. Addiction it is, it is. It is my sacrifice. And who are you uh, robbing to feed this addiction? I can't tell you that. If I told you, that, I'd have to kill you. I, I, oh, I could try. I could very much try. Me misery. It's a Dave Mastiff. So, uh, but when you first started, you weren't Dave Mastiff when you first started. No, I was uh, Dave Morales. So, what? What? Where did uh, Mastiff come from? Well, well, how long was you Morales? Uh, probably uh, 2002 started May 2002 and that was up until I went to OVW in 2009 September 2009 um, that name wasn't particularly well it was chosen by me but I was put on the spot for my okay, first, yeah, my first yeah, yeah, I get like everyone is here and he was like oh shame uh, uh, Morales and that you, was where did that come from uh, you know the, the ex-boxer Eric Morales oh. yeah, I thought he was a good fighter and just came to my head and didn't make any sense whatsoever but nobody was there to stop me it was, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like going bowling when you're a kid without the uh, gates on the holes, oh, the alleys, and the gutters. So just yeah, put that, write that down. Oh, okay, same. And I just kind of stuck, and then when I went to OVW, uh, Rip Rogers saw my name on the on the run sheet, and he looked at the name, looked at me, and his exact words were, "You're not fucking Mexican. What the fuck?" So I kind of went, "Oh yeah," and I went, "You need a new name." So just a bit of a brainstorm, and as you can tell. Not the most creative, so end up with Mastiff. No, I think Mastiff's good though because I remember chatting to somebody and they went, uh, You should be able to sum a wrestle up in one word. That's how a gimmick or a character should be able to, people should be able to see you and associate one word with you. And I, to be honest, you say Mastiff and you instantly think of a bull Mastiff. And if you look yeah. at you, you're built like a bull Mastiff. Thanks very much. <laughs> you are. Uh, how was OVW? It was great, it was an excellent learning experience. That all came about. I, deci- I decided that I wanted to. When did you go over? Uh, September 2009, and I came back in January 2010. Well, well, Christmas Eve 2009, actually, I think. I came back. Um, I'd kind of decided I wanted to uh, go somewhere and just train further and learn something new because uh, I felt I felt kind of stale at the time in Britain. Um, how long you, how long have you been wrestling before before then? Uh, seven years. So you wrestled seven years before you went to OV? OV yeah. How long have you wrestled for? Uh, 14 years. Yeah. Man, man and boy. Man and boy. So I've been wrestling that long enough. It was kind of stale over here. And the, the one thing that I always said about this country is when I started and a lot of people started before that kind of 2008, 2009 kind of time, there was never any, there wasn't a lot of great quality training in this country. There was a couple of places, the Hammock School had a good reputation. Um, and the FWA had been up and running uh, a couple of years, but there hadn't been that kind of. Uh, just wasn't that quality training. No, there, there wasn't uh, so much of it about, and I kind of felt stale, and I felt the need to go and get new knowledge. And when uh, uh, Nick Dinsmore, Eugene came over, oh, yeah. and Doug Bashman came over, and he spent six months over here or something like that, and they kind of. Uh, they kind of showed me a few tricks and a few new things and taught me a lot. I got, got to spend quite a bit of time with them. I was quite lucky. And they kept putting over OVW to me, saying how good he was, how good Rip Rogers was as a coach, all this kind of stuff. And I decided I wanted to go somewhere. And I 
it came down to either there, OVW in Louisville, or Harley Racing School in Missouri. And a couple of my friends were going to Louisville as well to train. And they were going to go for three months, and I'd planned to go to Harley Racing for six weeks. And I thought, well, my friends are going there, so I've heard these good things about OVW and with Rogers and stuff like that, so why don't I just go there as well? So who was the friends? Uh, the uh, Blossom Twins. Oh, they were going over yeah, there. So they went over. They'd been over for a couple of weeks the previous year, and it's just that I had experience there. And I thought, you know, may, may as well spend that time, you know, with people I know, as opposed to going to Missouri by myself. So that was uh, that's Was it still the OVW? Was it still the WWE developmental? Then? No, it had been WWE had moved their developmental to Florida. Maybe I think it was maybe the August before, so or early late 2008 or early 2009, maybe on. I'm unsure on the dates. So they started FCW. Yeah, they just started the yeah, Florida Championship Wrestling. And it was, OVW was then self-sufficient as its own kind of wrestling school and um, producing shows and things like that. What about training before OVW? Uh, training was kind of uh, the style of training I had at the very start was very poor in, in many ways. It was it was pay five pounds, turn up and try not to kill yourself on crash mats. That's you know, Sounds very much like my training. Yeah, yeah. stark reality and that was that was the standard and that was because you look at that kind of time in the early 2000s, really, you know, uh, if you look at all the veterans in British wrestling, you look at Regal, Finley, they're in America, um, Tony Sinclair was in Germany, uh, Dave Taylor was in America, um, Chip Cullen would move to Canada, and we were really there was only a couple of guys left like uh, Robbie looks like spent a lot of time in Germany as well so the knowledge wasn't always quite there because a lot of the older guys had left and gone on to bigger things yeah. stuff like that which is you know what you do uh, so it kind of left a, a gulf in the, in the training capacity almost to bring new wrestlers through but that kind of that kinda, I think that kind of changed after that kind of 2008 2009 when we had an influx of imports I think when you had when you guys were finding your feet 2008-2009 I personally think that's why I came in November 2009 so 2010 would be my first proper year that I go into it Wales still didn't have Wales still didn't have that scene no. so because as you know you guys weren't really going to Wales we had a few people there but the scene hadn't really developed there so I think we were probably still about a year or two behind you guys yeah very probably and I think it was it was, it was something that had to the information and knowledge had to trickle through and like I say we had we had guys come over like Al Snow, Mick Dinsmore, Doug Basham, and all these guys came over and spent time and did seminars. And I, like I said, I was quite lucky I got to travel with them a fair amount and learn a lot in that respect. And then when I went to OVW, I came back with a whole host of you know knowledge that I'd been there and learned. And I just you know shared that amongst my friends and stuff like that, and tried implementing it in what I was doing to make myself better. And you know, cumulatively, that kind of started trickling down everywhere and I think the scene started improving and the standards of training became better and training became more readily accessible as well whereas 2002 when I started it was down to Ashford in Kent for Hammerlock which was 180 miles 190 miles for someone like me you know, 16 years of age and then you know well, couldn't get there that easy on Sunday yeah. after various down in Portsmouth and that was, that was really it so nowadays the amount of training schools you've got and I'm not, not all training schools are good. You know, let's be realistic. Yep. But there's a there's a good handful of training schools now that have got some real great facilities and got some good coaches 
and they bring in some excellent guest coaches and that's what I think people who've started wrestling in the last six, seven years in particular don't seem to realise. I've said the exact same as Jack. I said that the people who are coming in now don't know how good they've got it. They really don't. Like, But at the same time, I also said to Jack that I feel that a lot of these, I'm going to call them kids for lack of a better word, are coming in and they're being put in front of 500 people, 300 people in their first match or two. Yeah. I can put my hand on it. I was dog shit <laughs> in my first couple of matches yeah. or whatever. And if I, w- I wouldn't have been ready to be in front of 300 people, 400 people, even if you have got the state-of-the-art training, a lot of the times, that, that's scary. That is, I think, do you agree that making mistakes in front of nobody helped you then for when you were stepping in front of somebody, if that makes sense? Um, it probably did, yeah. I would, I would say, well, I've been, like, so I think my second ever match I was in front of, I think there was 13 people in the crowd and at half time six of them left because one of the family members had a heart attack. Uh, I'm not joking about that. That's, well, so you, you, you know, were pretty good then, yeah. <laughs> exactly. On fire. You know. um, so, yeah, yeah, and a lot of guys, they come in from school and they aren't ready to be on shows. The way we're talking, it's kind of like, oh, back in my day and blah, blah. And I'm, not, I'm just talking about, you know, the experience I had. I wasn't ready to be on shows when I first started, but there's no one stopping me. There was no one who had enough knowledge who, and I keep using that word knowledge because that's what it is, nobody had that knowledge and that foresight to say, well, no, they're not ready. And they would just put you out there. And we had to kind of learn by doing. And you keep making mistakes. Sometimes you pick up on the mistake. Sometimes you don't. And it just so happened that at that kind of time, which I mentioned, that kind of 2008 kind of time, there were more people about with trained eyes so they would see the mistake you'd make and they were kind enough in many circumstances to share their knowledge with you and point you in the right direction and that's kind of pushed us to where we are now and in this country at the minute people people coming in are, are very lucky in terms of the fact that there's better quality training and people sharing knowledge and also when they do get ready to go on shows they, they go on big shows in front of big audiences a lot of the guys, like, I mean, we're, we're at Progress today, and it's sold out of town. I mean, was it 400, 500 people, 600? Yeah. Like, stupid amount of people in one room to watch us do what we do. Or we go in the ballroom and there's 800 people there. And they got guys coming through the Projo who worked hard to get their space on the show, and they come onto the show, and they're wrestling in front of 800 people. And on I, their first year? On their first show? Yeah. My first year, I probably didn't wrestle in front of 800 people full stop. Well, all the shows combined, I probably didn't wrestle in front of 800 people. It was a good show. And it's, and it's one of the things, yeah, I, don't, I don't know whether it was character building or what, but looking back to them, I know what it's like to look out into the crowd and think, oh, this, it's almost deflating, you know, and then any time yeah, you get to, you watch any form of live entertainment and no matter what it is, if you go and see a single, you go you know, to a band or a comedian in a pub or a club or a bar, and when there's three men there and a dog, you kind of sit down and I feel so much empathy for them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, as an audience member, if they're, if they're good and they're talented, then I will applaud and I'll get into their act and but stuff. That, because but it's also difficult because you and yourself, you've been in a club, and sometimes people are scared to make that noise as well. So when you are in front of 30 people, they don't want to make a noise. Yeah, they, they feel embarrassed. Yeah, exactly, because people are going to look at them. So one person makes 600 maniacs out there will make as much noise because it's it's mob mentality, isn't it? Yeah, and re- so, wrestling is always better when the, the arena is almost darkened out and the spotlight is on the ring where you want it to be because then all those people in their shadows, they will shake things, they will yeah. cheer things, they'll boo, they'll clap, they'll scream. 
and they do all that kind of stuff. Whereas if it's bright in there, then people scared to them because then it takes the attention off what's happening in the ring and onto them. And a lot of people they don't want to be they don't want to be the show. No. They pay their money to watch the show, not the show. All right, then, what was what was the breakthrough then when you went British wrestling or your career was the boom started then? Let's go there. Uh, well, I was for, for myself. I was pretty busy from that kind of two thousand. My first two or three years was I, I was quite busy in terms of the place where I trained. They were running shows monthly. Where was that? What was that? Uh, FCW, awesome. based in the Midlands, and yeah. you know they they probably ran somewhere around twenty five shows a year. So the first couple of years, that seems like a lot of work, twenty five matches a year, but it's, even though it's not. But then after that, so kind of picking up bookings elsewhere, places like IPW when it started out, um, and then that led to things like One PW, and I ended up in that kind of period from two thousand five to two thousand and eight, being busy every weekend and working lots and of course in you to keep perfecting the craft. Was one P- one PW was they, they drew big, didn't they? Oh yeah that was the I whole think I was watching wrestling channels, they were drawing big. I was still in school yeah, so began, so. I was selling at the Doncaster Dome with eighteen hundred people and stuff. It was and that was crazy. They were, I mean they were obviously they were losing money and they were fist because they were paying extortion amounts for certain people but you know, that's, that's just what its business goes. Is that why they went down? Yeah. It was a guy, the guy was such a big fan of wrestling that, and he, he had money, so when people came and asked for them, they said they had money, you would pay them that money. Because he thought that's what they were worth. Yeah, and I'm, Well, they, 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 if we're going to go down there, wrestling as a whole usually underpaid, so they probably were 100% worth that. And in an ideal world, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> ideal world, they'd be worth that, you'd be worth that, we'd all be no, worth in that. A, in an ideal world. But what we do. Yeah, and that, that was the downfall of it. There was, and also there was, there wasn't a chief. There really wasn't a chief. Wars of Indians. Yeah, nobody, no, there was nobody at the top who everyone just respected and his word said, you know, his word was the law and everybody went with it and it was one of those situations where money was flying about so people could take that and all these guys were coming out from America getting big paydays and stuff and eventually when there's no substance to what's happening, when there's no, uh, when there's no real connection from the fans to the people that are in the ring, eventually that's just gonna stop caring erode yeah. and it's gonna sink and that, that's what happens and that's what did happen there so 1PW went down but was there still other big promotions around at that point um not really wrestling was kind of in a hole in many ways around well like 2000 2006 to 2009 kind of time but we're talking about big crowds would be like 200 people you know that's that's how it was over here apart from apart from working for Brian Dixon you know, he's, oh, yeah, you know, he's working at Southend where there's 1,500 people and, you know, 2,000 people at Skeggy and stuff like that, which is mental, but that, that was... Do you like working in the camps? Camps are amazing for that's, that's where you learn to be a worker. That's where you really learn because that's... You, you know, you spend all your time away from... You're away from home seven weeks, eight weeks or whatever. And you've got to, you know, you've really got to look out, learn to look after yourself. You've got to, you know, you've got to feed yourself, you've got to wash all your clothes, keep your gear all clean. You've got a early start, late finishes, you drive thousands of miles in those eight weeks. Was the first, I could be wrong here, was the first time we met, was it in the camp in Wales? Was, was you with that group? And me and Wild Boar went out and was supposed to have a 20 minute match and had a 5 minute match. And then the next tag team had to make it up for a 40 minute match. Was you on that one? Would that have been, who ran the show? Bone. Was that a Celtic? Bone. No, it would have been Bone was doing stuff for Brian. 
no, no, I remember that. that was, I think um, you might have done the week before it. And I, was, I wasn't on the team that week. Because I remember <laughs> being told about that... Uh, that they still, they so. still won't let us run. Yeah. <laughs> still every time goes, oh, it's nice to see you can make up the time now every time I go over. So yeah. you're still trying to work that off? Yeah, I'm still trying yeah, to work that off. Gotta, you've got to wrestle. You've got to, the show's got to be an hour. And the <laughs> one hour got to be. So when you've only got two matches or three matches, you've got to put 25 minutes yeah. in or so. And obviously you guys went in and did five minutes. And you've got two guys in the back going, oh, God. <laughs> we, came, we came running through and uh, we sat down and they thought we were doing the uh, chase spot where we'd run backstage yeah. and then we'd come back around so they were going uh, can you hear the referee's count? and we're like referee's count? and they were like it's a chase spot isn't it? like no we're done <laughs> <laughs> and Bone's face just drops and they're like are you kidding? I'm like no we're done like we've got go-. and they literally went out they did like a 50 minute match yeah. but this was because I think me and me and Wobble at this point have been working maybe six months and nobody, yeah. nobody explained this to us yeah, that, that happens quite a lot actually where people where, where you get somewhere and people don't tell you what's fully expected of you well they said 20 so. and because we'd never done 20 before I think we probably went probably went about 10 probably but because all our matches before had been 5-6 our instantly then when we got to about 10-12 we thought we'd go really really long oh, yeah. so we we didn't that's a bit different because normally you know you said someone like 10 minutes and 35 minutes later you're having to claw them backstage you know do you think that's a, uh, a detriment Absolutely, I think uh, what you've got, uh, the, the big thing that I think people struggle with when, when they get into wrestling is um, pretty much, I mean, it's a generalisation obviously, but pretty much everyone that gets into wrestling, they want to be the star of the show, they want to be Hulk Hogan or The Rock or Stone Cold or John Cena. Well, that's why you, they, get, that's why you get into it though, is Exactly, but the thing that you've got to remember is like, they're at the top there and that's their turn to be at the top there, the main event for a reason. I mean, how, how pissed would you be if you went to see your favourite band and the support act come out and they played for two hours and then your favourite band comes on and they go, oh, well, we can only do 15 minutes because these practice have done two hours. That's quite an interesting way to look at it. And, but I, was, and I think of it this way. The, the sh- wrestling, the show, the performance is an entity in itself and we're all just a small part of that show. And on this given night it's these guys turn to be in the main event and they're given 25 minutes to wrestle and perform and entertain people whereas these guys down here they're given 8 minutes and that's no slight on you if you're given 8 minutes it's just that tonight it's their turn to be main event you know at some point in the future it'll be your turn to be main event everybody taking in turns everybody gets to be in the main event at some point it's just the way it works. That's wrestling standards at any show. Someone's going to be on at the end. Someone's going to be the last thing people see. And that's going to be... Uh, and and that, that's just the way it is. And why should it be any other way? So it, people need to be a little less selfish and think about the show, not about themselves. You know, Traditionally, if you do the job you've been asked to do, then you will get your turn to be in the main event. And that's how it tradi- that's how it traditionally yeah it's, it's it has changed maybe it has a little bit but I still think if you're no matter I look at wrestling like a job and you turn up somewhere and your job is to do this so you go and do this that's what you've been asked to do so that's what you do according to the boss if you're if you work in a nightclub and your job is to collect glasses then you go and collect glasses 
You don't go and stand on the door and be dorsal. <laughs> but, you know, but, and, but that's a problem, you know. Oh, all the... All the, all the nightclubs with that hat. Yeah. Like sure. oh, all the girls are shagging the doorman. I want to be a doorman. Well, no, you've glass collect tonight. So collect glasses. One day, maybe, you'll be a doorman. And that, that's what it feels like. You know, sometimes where, well, no, I want to be made, I want to do everything. I want to be going 30 minutes. No, mate. You've been given six minutes, ten minutes. Do the job. Because if you do your job right and they do, they do their job right and they do their job right and everyone does their job right, then eventually everyone will be successful. We're all part of this machine. If we all work collectively together, then this machine will be a success. And that success flows through everyone that's involved in the company. Yeah. That's how, that's how I look at it. That's fair enough, that's fair enough. Say success, now would you... I. I see you could probably define success with uh, traveling and going to different lots of countries and stuff like that. How many countries have you wrestled in? Um, Top of your head. 12, 13, that's something like that. That's so, good. Yeah. That's pretty good. What, what's your favorite ones you've been to? Or the ones that's... I know that's difficult because then it's like, are you alienated places you want to go back to? But there's no say your favorite then. Which ones... Do you have any ones that you can... Off the top of your head you can think about? I enjoy everywhere I wrestle, and you know sometimes uh, there's some instances that stick out in my head because everywhere is so, is so different. Uh, wrestling in, in the United States, in the uh, you know wrestling in the deepest, darkest woods of Kentucky, and someone goes out there and they cut like a little two-minute promo, and as they're like talking two-minute promo, you've got some guy there, a redneck for want of a better term, and he's steaming at the eyeballs. That's <laughs> my you know, things like that just amuse me greatly. Um, that happened. Oh yeah, that's, that, that, that's happened while uh, we're in this barn in Irvine, Kentucky, and the show's being run by a guy who is about four foot six inches tall. Um, I, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna speculate about the relationship between his parents. <laughs> 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 but he was, he was a massive pervert. Like he, he walked up to all the girls and hug all the girls, but he was at perfect height. To snuggle his nose into their breasts, and he was he was doing it. So and he's he's run the show, and twelve people and a donkey have turned up or something like that because he's not really running; he just wants to run it. And it's I think it's November, and there's no heat in the building, and the six of us wrapped in this huge duvet backstage. We've got our wrestling gear on. I'm on next, and we're shuddering in this big duvet, like six of us. And this guy's going to cut this little promo, like, and it is it's a two minute promo, and there's I said there's 12 people or 20 people something silly and there's this one guy and he's steaming his eyeballs are popping out of his head screaming that's not wrestling and uh, next thing you know like, turn, my turn for my match and my music hits so get out the duvet straight in 10 minutes later come back just get straight back in the, the duvet, duvet. like six of the shivering knocking our knees so but that's a, that's a true story Irvine, Kentucky just want to take a few seconds from our conversation today to put a shout out to suplexapparel.com. They're an athletic clothing brand with pro wrestling at the heart of it. They even have a pro wrestling team made up of Adam Cole and Helgo, Prince Devitt, Gail Kim and even our friend Dave Mastiff and a few others too. Make sure you check them out at suplexapparel.com or at Twitter at Suplex Wrestling. I have three or four t-shirts myself. They're bloody gorgeous. See, I've never wrestled. Uh, one story, I remember you telling me, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go down this one because I really like the story. 
did you wrestle you wrestled in was it Germany and uh, Generico was on the show and the show oh, get, Belgium Belgium and the show the show get, this story is great <laughs> so I'm gonna go down here um, yeah, it could be quite a long one sorry yeah, but uh, so the, this guy was running a company in Belgium we'd been over there um, a few months beforehand and it was uh, it was a good show they packed in like twelve hundred people and there was a guy on the show we. We were all calling the Belgian Ultimate Warrior. He, could, he couldn't, he couldn't work a lick. You know, he didn't have padlock from a wrist lock. But he was, was he over? Oh yeah, he was, <laughs> he was, he was like running for mayor in this little town <laughs> called Mons. Why, in why, why, why wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah and like, he, when he comes out, and he's got they've got the big trussing and the time training right? And he comes for his entrance. He has like a twelve minute entrance. His match is only supposed to be fifteen minutes in total, but he has a twelve minute entrance where he comes out in this big chopper motorbike revving it like he's an Undertaker or some shit, and uh, it, like, everybody's going wild for him. Gets in there, three minutes later, stinks the place out. Um, but yeah, so they drew really well. There's like twelve hundred people in there. Everything was great. They had a good team uh, of boys on there. There's a lot of British guys on there. Uh, so they come to book us again, and this was 2010. This was during the World Cup. And uh, it was, uh, they were booking a weekender, so a Saturday and a Sunday, and Saturday night we'd all got there. Again, a bunch of us British guys, uh, El Generico was on as well, Sami Zayn, as he is now, is he? Yeah. Uh, so he was on as well. And 12 people showed up again, it was a great night, great atmosphere. Next day we're going to come back to the same again, but it's in middle of the day, so it's like a 3pm show. 3 same p.m. venue? Same venue. And everybody had bought weekend tickets, so it was like, yeah, it's going to be great, 1,000 people again, it's going to be wicked. But what they failed to tell us was that in the next town, in the next village, because this is such a small place in Belgium, the next village they're having a big carnival there. And what people have done is there was no price difference between the single day tickets and the weekend tickets. So people just bought the weekend tickets. Which, just in case they wanted yeah, to go. Maybe we'll go back. But then they'd obviously have their wrestling fill on that Saturday night. So the Sunday, the entire population of this town, apart from 10 people, was at the festival. went to this festival <laughs> in the next village. And... Uh, the, the management come round and they've let like, the ten people in who want to see the show, and uh, we during the day we'd had a, we'd, we played football bacon nights in the middle of June, and uh, we played like eight aside outside. We had a great day, Roy Knight and Laguerre and Gold, Big Van Walter played, all this kind of stuff. Been a real great day. We had a lot of fun, and we we're all exhausted, but getting ready to do the show. Ten people come in, the management come and tell us that there's ten people there, so we all have a big meeting. And uh, they turned and said, Look, there's 10 people here, what shall we do? Uh, and we kind of said, well, you can, we can either do a show in front of 10 people that you can film. And the ring was, the ring was like a boxing ring as well. Oh, it's hard. It was horrible. It was like, you know, there's no give. So we, we turned and said, well, we can, we can either run this show, we can go out there and do the show in front of 10 people, you film it and you put it out online, and then that looks terrible for your company, that there's 10 people in the crowd. Or we can reimburse them some ticket money, offer them some merchandise, and we can not run the show, and then or give them a free ticket to the next show that you're running. And, and they'd made their money the night before, so they wasn't going to lose anyway. Yeah, and they and and they turn around and said, well, if we cancel, don't worry, everybody's money's guaranteed anyway because we've made plenty of money and all this stuff. So there was really no reason to to go ahead with the show, and uh, everyone kind of agreed. Well, okay, we'll just cancel the show and. They had a big screen, so we'll put England versus Germany on in the World Cup quarter-final. And um, life's good. Great day. We've played football. We're going to watch football. We've been paid. And, you know, bonus. We haven't had to work for the money, which is, you know, a nice bonus every now and then. Because, you know, you always get screwed out to something along the way. You'll do a job and, you know, you won't get 
you know, promoted just have the money. Of course, like you, you yeah. love wrestling, but at the same time, it's like it was in front of ten people, and we have already said something wrestling in front of ten people. Yeah, you get nothing out of them. There's no noise, and they don't even, they don't enjoy it. So it's hard for you to enjoy it, and yeah. it's just yeah, I get just you shortchanging the fans. Yeah, by going out there and not giving hundred percent, and vice versa. So, and like I say, sometimes you get, sometimes you're down in this job, sometimes you're up, and. That day we were kind of up because we already told that there was no worries about any money or anything like that or whatever, and our bookings were safe for next time and the company was secure, so we're like, okay, everything's fine. But Generico was, he just felt so guilty, and he was there, and he was there going, oh, you know, maybe we should give them a rumble or something. And I'm going, no, no, mate, honestly, it's fine. We've, you know, they're happy. They've had some money back. They'll take the next show, or whatever. Lots of merchandise. Yeah, yeah we, they're, they're happy. But I just feel so guilty. Maybe we should give us. I go, mate, you haven't got to kill yourself and get hurt for money today. It's okay. It's like, I know, but I just feel so. Ram. Sit down. Eat, <laughs> eat some pizza and watch the football with the rest of us. So there's like one guy out of 20 just going, oh, do you, I just want to wrestle. It's like, mate, just, it's okay. Just uh, have today off. You're fine. Your foot's probably at the last night or something. Just, just take a rest of today. Today's fine. Just put today down as one of those experiences, and it'll be a nice story to tell everyone in a few years' time. I always tell everybody that I was a professional footballer for the day on that day. But I love this story because I remember you told me this when we were in Italy, and you already know where I'm going for this oh, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you told me the story, and then you were saying, like, this is one of the greatest things that you get paid for these uh, international bookings. You get to see a little bit of the country, and and you get these little stories. And I was like, I was like, this is great, this is, this is fantastic. So you like, so. I was like, oh, I hope, oh, I hope I have a story from this journey. <laughs> and it'd been apart from you and Trent Seven going out there in front of seven people and doing a thirty-minute Ironman match, which was still, which is proof that even when there is there's a small crowd, you'll go out there and absolutely kill it because you actually murdered each other for thirty minutes, which was fantastic. And it's certainly my highlight of the entire weekend. And I'm going to give my interpretation of it. So <laughs> we get in two cars. You have been saying to me and all the boys, they are taking us to see the Coliseum. They are taking us. Yeah. And they are going, we can't. And you were saying, listen, you were taking us and we were going to get out. We're going to take a picture of us at the Coliseum. I could put it on Facebook. All my friends would think I'd be at the Coliseum. <laughs> and we would go to the airport and they were going, we can't. And I remember you being adamant. And I go in the one car with Damien and you and Jen go in the other car. <laughs> and the cars were by each other. And then you split off. <laughs> and the look on your face was smiling smug. And I was like, I was like, the bastard, he's, he's convinced him to go to the Coliseum. So we got to the airport and I was like, you absolute twats, how have you got to get to the Coliseum? And then the guy picks up the phone to find out where they are. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you now fill in what happens next. So I think you've gone to the Coliseum. And you, you think you're going to the Coliseum. Yeah, so th- this is part of the whole deal. They said they wanted to, I said... Oh, can you fly me back like late, like later on the Monday, so we can see the Coliseum because it was based around. Yeah, it was. And they, I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. I thought, brilliant. I'll get to see, you know, a bit of history. You know, it'd be so good, so cool. And they were adamant. And that night, remember, we sat down after the show and we had a big meal in the hotel. Yeah. And uh, they come and said, okay, tomorrow we'll leave at seven a.m. And I'm like, hang on, my flight's not till four. Yeah. And they're like, no, but we have to take Jack. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And I said, but then we, you know, we still go to the Coliseum. And they're like, hmm. And I'm like, no, no, you said we'll go to the Coliseum. And I'm like, okay, so, yeah, we just want a photo. Say, look, we don't want to go around it. We just want a photo in front of it. Thumbs up. Brilliant. Everybody's happy. So obviously, yeah. 
we parked off on that journey back to the airport. You looking like a Cheshire cat. Was, I'm going to see the colours again. Yeah, so Screw happy. you guys. And uh, we're driving. And at one point, we come to a standstill in the traffic. And we're in gridlock. And I turn to the driver and say, how long till the Coliseum? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I missed the turning. We're lost. So instantly, this guy's got us lost. And at that, he's gone. Like, he's phoned his friend. Yeah. Found out where he needs to go. Yep. Got back in the car. He's driving us off. So, me and me and Ben, we're happy. You know, life's good again. Next thing you know, we we arrive at the airport. Okay, so we get the airport first, and then we'll go to Coliseum. We're over the airport, and he can't find the terminal where the flight is. So, and this is this is Rome, and uh, I turn and say, well, what what flight number is it? And he tells me. So I run into the Ryanair terminal and I ask, oh, where you know what terminal is this flight from? And they look on the computer and they try and say, oh, um, we don't have that flight upon our information. I'm thinking, sure, you know, this is madness. I don't know what's going on. So I come walking back out and I get to the car. The Italian guy's on his phone again, obviously, to, to your mate who's driving your car. And uh, he gets off the phone and he's like, ciao, ciao, puts the phone down. And, and he, he doesn't speak good English, does he? No, Not at all. terrible. And he just looks at me and full Italian gestures and body language and all that. And he turns around and he went to... How do you say a uh, wrong airport? <laughs> and instantly, I just lose my mind. And I went, you fucking don't, mate. <laughs> and Ben's going, calm down. So what the mean wrong fucking airport? And this guy had driven to the airport that we'd arrived in, but we were flying back from a different airport. Yep. And we had to drive 45 minutes across Rome to get to the separate airport where you guys were. And I just sat there with a mod on me the whole time. Because I'm, I'm in the other airport with Damien Dunn and I'm angry. I'm so angry you've got to see the Coliseum. But when he goes, uh, they've uh, gone to the wrong airport, my anger turns into just, I just started laughing. And I was just crying with laughter. And it, instantly my head went, I went, well, you know, Dave did say that we'll have these stories where we, where we go to international bookings. And I was like, this is great. That, that was Absolutely like, fantastic. That was like two and a half years ago. I'm still quite bitter about the Coliseum experience. <laughs> But then I was like, you were, you came back and you were so annoyed, and I was just oh. pointing and laughing at you, and you were getting so angry. It was well, that's the thing. Like, it, it, it was more the fact that I wasn't sorry that the guy again lost or the wrong airport, but it was more the fact that you were convinced I, you were I, going to see the calls. Well, yeah, and like we'd arranged, like I'd taken a later flight home because we were going to see the Coliseum, and then it turns out, well, hang on, we're not going to see the Coliseum. I was like, oh, well, if, if, if that would have been the case, I'd have flown back at 9am the next morning. But, you know, but like I say, it's, it's one of those one of those stories. And, of course, when we got to... to meet you <laughs> you at the airport, I knew this was going <laughs> Yeah, when, when we got to you, we, we sat down for food. And I, I thought to some kind of compensation, they were going to buy us dinner. And of course, they never did. They so. <laughs> popped you there and they went, ah, we'll buy it. Bye, yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> Ciao. Because we've been, we've been taking care of the entire time yeah, up really to that. Well. So we thought that we thought the... the we'll, Bit yeah. of compensation you were going to get on meals. Yeah, pay for it, pay for a little bit. So if you could spend the next six hours in the airport for our flight, we're going to need. It's going to be expensive. Yeah, and as it turned out, it was expensive for you. <laughs> so we, we were we were just perusing what was on offer in terms of the food. And you, did you have chicken? Was it? So I can remember. I, I remember, and this is my train of thought. I can remember because it's the like first time I met you. Uh, I think I'd been to one of you two training classes and stuff like that. But you'd been like this is the first time we'd probably been at a show we were working together and stuff like that, and. I can remember just thinking, I've got to be professional. So I bought this chicken, and the chicken was good. Chicken was good. It was it was cheap as well. Yeah. But I was like, no, I need to have some. I need to have some veg on this plate. I need to show Dave that I am. I'm looking after my body. And it, 
so I bought some peas. But she offered you, she went to, you, you like peas? And you went, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Come with them more. Listen up, more, more. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, the price came up. I was like, that's a lot more expensive than I thought. So a lot, a lot more expensive. So I paid. And I sat down, I was like, oh, this is a lot more expensive than I thought. And you're like, let's have a look at, it. Look at your receipt. Let's look, let's see, you start spending it. And you just start, you're, you, at this point, you've been the grumpiest man for the last two hours. And we've all got, and then you literally just look at me and smile. And I was like, what? And he goes, you've paid eight pound for peas. And I was fucking pissed off. I was so annoyed. And you just, just, and you were just caught. I remember I met, uh, what's the, well, I met the girl from up north. North, who she was your uh, was she your manager? You in cruise? She managed you in cruise at Progress. Uh, Jenny. Yeah. yeah, Jenny. So I remember I met Jenny first. Time I met Jenny. And this must have been a, bit, a year later. And I met Jenny, and she went, "Oh, you're pee boy." And I was like, "Absolute twat." <laughs> I think the upsetting thing is you paid like four pounds for chicken. And so peas. <laughs> the chicken was lovely, and then I remember just eating the peas. I was like, I can't eat any more peas. And you just look at me going, "You've paid eight pounds for these peas. You eat those goddamn peas." <laughs> Don't know what it is about peas in Italy, but they must, they must be it must after shot them in. Or they must like be that. shot them in. Shot them in. Yeah. So that, that's traveling around, but like the British scene is so good now, and it has been since when we were at the boom game. So probably, I reckon, I reckon it really started kicking off. Of, End of 2012 kind of time. Okay. So the last and the last three years have been really really good. Houses just started boom, and you know a lot of, a lot of companies. I think the big thing is companies they found an identity. Yeah, that's yeah. I think I would have picked up on that with Jack. Um, I feel that we were left after like World of Sports went off the air. I think we were left with no identity for so long, and even the wrestlers were just carbon copies of what they saw on TV. Yeah. That they had no identity. But n- that's it now. I think everyone, wrestlers and promotions, have an identity. Yeah, exactly. You know, they look, wrestling promotions aren't just, they're not just uh, an art, you know, a random piece of the alphabet that put a show on and people turn up to. They're, they're a brand. They're, you know, the fans become, particularly places like Progress and ICW, um, the, the fans there they they become part of the part of the makeup the furniture almost because it's a it's just it, it's a, it's something to be part of the yeah. culture for them again like you know you with your mod culture love and stuff like that it is it is that for them it is their it's like a way of life they they identify themselves as being you know progress and that, that's how they feel yeah. so there's such a strong identity and strong connection between the wrestling company and the brand and the fans that it's it, it, they feel a part of it it's not it's not something they go to it's almost something they are is what I would say and that's how it is with the big promotions in Britain at the minute it's become kind of like foot. it's almost for like the football the football I wouldn't say fashion but it is the football mentality isn't it like yeah. everyone now has their own teams or their own wrestlers that they support and they yeah. wear the t-shirts and everyone goes there Absolutely. and it's a weekend away as well it's it's them going yeah. to places and they follow on the country and stuff I, like that i think the cool thing is it's not so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of snobbery or anything in terms of that so it's not like oh i'm a progress fan so i won't go to icu yeah. oh i'm a i'm a Southside fan so i won't go to rev pro and, and things like that because they just want to see great wrestling they're british wrestling fans yeah. aren't they but they just that, but they love the identity of certain companies, so they feel a bit more uh, loyal to them, maybe. In it's, terms of- I think it's a bit like 
Your, what, what football team do you support? Oh, United. United. Yeah. But then at the same time, I know that, uh, of course, you have USG, like Liverpool, stuff like that. But then if they have players from Liverpool who then play for England... You still support England. Exactly, yeah. So it's exactly like that. So I think 2012, yeah. Um, what was it? What was it? I was going to say something. I had a really good point. It's gone. What's what's? <laughs> I'm really good at these, as you can tell. Um, what's next? That's what I was going to. That's where I was going to go. What's next for you? Well, you've you've the booms happened, and you've been very well. Boom! You've worked. You worked every major company in Europe, and some in America. So what's next? What's have you got anything lined up? Have you got any? I don't. I never really know what's next. To be honest, I, I'd never. I never kind of never lived my life in that kind of way to go. Well, this is next. I'm going to do this and. Is it, not to say I don't have ambitions, but I don't, you know, I don't hang my coat on something saying like that's it, or that's it or nothing. So I'm 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 very happy with wrestling on the British and European scene, but you know there's other places that, that I do want to wrestle. There's, there's a few American companies that I'd love to go to Japan uh, in particular, and it's just a case of having you know the right opportunity coming up at the right time, and you know trying to put something forward there. I just uh, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, and as long as I'm getting better, and as long as I'm enjoying it, then that, that's the most important thing for me. What about WWE? Uh, well, why not? It's a uh, you've had you've had tryouts. Yeah, um, and that was a great experience, and uh, you know, I'm definitely I'm definitely trying again. You know, I'm not I'm not going to not pursue that. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to pursue that. It's not a case of, like, so I'm not going to put my eggs in a certain basket, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to pursue every avenue possible to be as successful as possible and to just be better and improve because that's, that's what's important to me at the end of the day. I don't, you know, I was, I, my ambition, obviously, when, when everyone starts wrestling, they tend to say, oh, yeah, I want to I go to WWE and I want to I wanna be on WrestleMania and be in the main event, WWE champion and all this kind of stuff. And to an extent, when I was a kid, I had that kind of attitude, but when started I just all I, all I wanted to do it just it just turned into well I just want this to be my career yeah and whether that's America Japan Europe it, it really didn't matter to me where but that my goal is just for professional wrestling to be my career that's what I want to do to pay my mortgage and, yeah and things like that that's that that's my ambition. So no matter, I don't know, I don't know where the destination is, but you know that that that's my goal. I just want to be able to do that. And I think there's loads of Americans who will, who make a very good living uh, on the independent circuit. Absolutely. And I think that the British scene now is, is on the rise. It is to that point now where I honestly could say I reckon in the next four or five years, people won't just be scraping by or just getting by British wrestling I think they'll be making a very comfortable living I think potential really is there to be able to do that oh I really hope so and there's certainly enough people who are determined to make it happen and there's, def- there's definitely a, there's a big fan base there if you'd go back in you know 10 years ago 15 years ago and if you would have said can this company sell out the York Hall five times a year 1200 people well you'd have been laughed at yeah but Andy Quillman and Repro's doing it can Progress Wrestling run 20 shows a year selling out 800 tickets without with all British names yeah you'd have been laughed at but they're doing it can Stephen Flutter 
run Preston 15 times a year and sell out 500 people, 600 people? Yeah, you can. Can ICW run the Barrowlands 2,000 people in and sell it out and tour nationally? Yes, they can. But 15 years ago, you'd been all laughed at. But we don't need TV. Sure, we need TV. Um, it depends. Because you need some kind of exposure. Um, and television would be is a great avenue you know television is essentially just an advert to, to live to shows sell, to sell the product to live shows pay for use things like that so maybe we don't need that at the minute but we need something to take us to that next level because British wrestling is on a certain level at the moment but it's not at the level it needs to be or should be to make it truly truly successful and I think personally I think that the first company that gets a series on Netflix will blow up oh that's a good point actually because things like pay-per-view is not, I'm not going to say it's dying but pay-per-view is not as uh, not so much at the forefront as it was well don't we have moved away don't we have kind of moved away from it yeah so pay-per-view is not at the forefront like it was 15 years ago traditional television habits have changed people don't watch a lot of live television unless no. it's sporting events um, and everything's on demand everything's downloading everything's subscription services and you know the companies in Britain we've got on demand services which is great but you know Netflix in particular they're a massive company and they like their own specials you know with documentaries you know, making a murder things like that so if you had the backing of some someone like that to produce, and because that's the, that's the issue when it goes to television, it's not about the quality of what we do, the wrestling show, because that's you know that's, that's second to none. But the issue is the production level. People need to turn. You it need over. the wrestling to keep them at, keep them interested, but you don't. You need the production value to hook them. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, that, and that's that's the next thing. So, and I think I think things like Netflix is just exploding at the moment. It's huge. Virtually everyone's got Netflix. Yeah. Apart from me, obviously. Because so, <laughs> you hate everyone. everyone. Yeah. yeah, I'm never in anyway. So, uh, so things like, something like that is exploding. And if they turned around and said, "Well, we want a wrestling show," then they could get the backing behind it, and it could really it could really take off. And again, depending on the product as well, because. Obviously, some products and some identities do have a limited kind of outreach. Yeah. But that's but uh, but I don't know how big that outreach is. Maybe it's bigger than I anticipate. Or so ideally, you want to be the first wrestler on Netflix without a Netflix account. <laughs> I'll have to borrow my mic login. <laughs> Just to make sure thing. Right, there, Dave. Where can people find you on the interweb? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Dave Mastiff. Um, my Instagram is real Dave Mastiff when I couldn't be bothered to upload something. <laughs> Sometimes well, people keep, keep, keep on liking that one for 52 weeks ago. Yeah, just, just follow me anyway. Um, official Dave Mastiff on my Facebook page. I don't have an official website or anything like that. Um, check out my sponsor, Suplex Wrestling. Yep. They're on Instagram as Suplex Wrestling and Twitter at Suplex Wrestling, Suplex.com or Suplexpower.com. And I've got a bunch of goodies from not just me, but you know, Angelico, Adam Cole, Finn Balor, Gav, 
yeah. Rosso this morning. But, uh, See, I would have gone, I would have gone and chatted about that, but I'm going to get Joel on a couple of this time. So I thought that uh, don't want him to steal his thunder because he will ask it when you have Joel on. Ask him about the incident of being caught in a precarious position by the ambulance service on his toilet. <laughs> I will do. I think I end on that, Dave. Thank you very much. No, absolute pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. <laughs> that uh, Rome, that Rome story gets me every time. It really is hilarious. But uh, yeah, fantastic. I I could have chatted to Dave for another easily for another hour on top, no problem. But I feel like I want to keep these uh, conversations to under forty five minutes. I want to keep them fresh. I want to keep them flowing. And you know what? It means I have a lot more to come back to. And it means if I want to do another one with Dave, I want to do another two with Dave, number three with Dave. I can. I want to keep this podcast going as long as possible. I want to keep it fresh, keep it exciting. And I definitely want to revisit a few more people. So uh, yeah, thanks, Dave. It really does mean a lot. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Always uh, always a joy to be around. And always uh, always a laugh. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Next week, I'm joined by Travis Banks. Recorded this today. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, to be honest, I, I've known Trav now, what, eight months? He's, uh, he's one of the funniest guys to be around. But sitting down with him and uh, really getting to know his story of how he came to be a pro wrestler had me jaw-dropped for... 90% of the conversation it is one of the most bizarre one of the craziest origin stories I have ever heard I'm gonna call that origin story literally we sat down in Trent Seven's house and he just told me everything where he started how he started the ordeal the craziness of it all it's one you're not gonna to want to miss and that's next week's episode with Travis Banks Travis is turning heads he's killing it up and down uh, Britain at the moment He's uh, he's he's done a run of America, he's done Japan, but I'm going to let him get into that next week. Zack Sabre Jr. sings his praises. If you haven't seen Travis Banks, go check out his stuff. He's definitely going to be the one to break out, if not the end of this year, next year, 100%. The boy's incredible, absolutely fantastic. But yeah, he's on the show next week, and it is absolutely amazing, crazy, crazy story. So you're not going to want to miss that. But yeah... Thanks again to uh, Dave Mastiff. Thanks again to our band of the week, Black Rose Cadillac. Follow them on uh, Twitter at Black Rose Caddy UK. They're absolutely fantastic. But yeah, thanks again, guys, for listening. It's been uh, it's been an absolute joy. And uh, yeah, if I don't see you again, if I don't see you again, well, I hope I see you again. I hope the podcast has been good. But uh, yeah, if I uh, don't see or hear from you, I hope you've enjoyed the show. And uh, catch you guys, catch you guys again. Thanks for listening. Always a pleasure. Always a treasure. Bye. Thanks for stopping by.